0: This is exactly right. Patients in a hospitalist or medical setting need to assert themselves and need to come fully prepared to defend what they perceive as being the thing that's the problem. And even if they are wrong about what is wrong with them, that does not mean that they do not deserve to be treated with respect.
1: Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint For your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Reproductive Injustice and Racism with Professor Donna Aene Davis. Donna is an Associate Professor of Urban Studies at Queens College and the Graduate Center at the City Universities of New York. She is the author of Battered Black Women and Welfare Reform, a contributor to Beyond Reproduction, and with Krista Craven, co-editor of Feminist Activity Ethnography. She's also the co-editor of Transforming Anthropology, the journal of the Association of Black Anthropologists, and she has a new book, which we're going to be talking about today, called Reproductive Injustice, Racism, Pregnancy, and Premature Birth. Donna, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here in conversation with you.
1: We have lots to talk about. We do. Um, Where I'd like to start is for you to tell us a little bit about where you were raised, where where you come from.
0: Great question. I was born in Harlem, New York. um, And I lived in Harlem right near City College uh, until I was eight. And then my parents moved to an area of New York called Riverdale, which was a predominantly white community. And my parents have lived in Riverdale since uh, since 1965.
1: So, So what was Riverdale like then as you were growing up? And I imagine there's been some transformation over the decades as well.
0: There has been. When uh, when we moved to Riverdale, um, we were the only Black people in the neighborhood, not in all of Riverdale, but on our block. And we did experience various aspects of racism. My father's car tires were slashed mm-hmm. regularly. Um, but uh, the the neighborhood was, it ended up being a really interesting group of people to three people with whom I became friends and we're still friends mm-hmm. from the time of Sully and Susan. <laughs> um, and, uh, and a lot of political activism was taking place. Um, my friend Susan's mom used to, she would literally get us involved in politics. We'd be passing out pamphlets for presidencies and for uh, mayors and that kind of thing. So it was both hard and simultaneously a very lovely political awakening. Mm-hmm.
1: What, you know, this is a, 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 such a common question. I know um, I feel really important still to ask, like, what, what was it like being the only black family in your area and how that mm. did impact your identity development?
0: Yeah, Um, actually, you know, it was, it was hard a, because first of all, I think I remember one morning when we were leaving, um, and the, the tires were slashed and my, I think it was like the first time I'd seen my dad cry. He was just exhausted from that. Um, and for me, the school, I I went to a school, um, the first year we moved up there, my parents continued to send me to a private school. Mm -hmm. And then when I got into second grade um, or third grade, I went to the public school and, you know, the trauma was the names calling the kids used. But um, I think I feel like what I learned mostly about being in that community was a, a commitment to to justice, And it wasn't just being there. It was also my parents who were involved in various things like supporting the United Negro College Fund and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and um, or the NAACP. And so I learned a lot about how you create community with people and how people that may not be familiar with the kind of experiences you have, like racism. Can still be good, committed people in a struggle mm. so yeah
1: yeah well um justice social justice has become a very uh a key part of your uh, personal and professional life and um mm. i I'm curious about your road to becoming both a anthropologist and and Ethnograph ethnographist. And probably we should, we should probably define, could you like tell us, you know, help all of us understand these, these terms that we hear. But you know, I also ask, like, okay, what exactly is
0: that? Yeah. So um, essentially, you know, anthropologists are people who are interested in all kinds of topics. Um, a lot of people think of anthropologists as people who go and do research in other places, you know, like we leave our home country or our home community and we go to a, and we go to Egypt or we go to Ghana and we do, or we go to, you know, an indigenous community like the Crow Reservation and we do do that. But essentially the way I perceive anthropology is that we're just looking to understand the meaning that, People give to things in their lives Um, and so um, but at the same time we have we have people who are anthropologists that are really interested in things like water like what does water mean how do people use it what are the ways in which toxic toxins influence reproduction or things like that so that's what anthropology is and that is in fact what I do some people have said the simplest version of understanding an anthropologist is somebody who's just kind of nosy and wants to mm. know what other people are thinking and want to spend time with them. Just a
1: curious person, a curious person. All right, you know what? We're going to we're going to save cuz I threw a lot at you. We're going to save ethnography after we get through this because this is your evolution. So what was the what was the road for you to becoming an anthropologist? Like did you know that this was a thing and something you wanted to do when you were young? You stumbled upon it?
0: It was completely an accident. Literally. Um, I have a degree in film. That was my undergraduate degree. Um, And then I went and got a degree in public health and I accidentally became an anthropologist in part because I went to see the department chair of sociology and he wasn't there for our meeting and I got really annoyed. So I went instead to see the chair of anthropology. It turns, I mean, I had, while I was getting my master's in public health, I had an anthropologist and a sociologist as professors, and they were each encouraging me to go into their particular mm. field. Uh, but the anthropology chair was there, and I liked her, and so I did it. And then I wasn't going to go, because you needed to be full-time, and I had a kid, and I couldn't figure out how it was going to work. And I said, I'm not paying to go to school, and then I got a grant. Nice. So it all nice. worked so, but I'm definitely accidents. Synchronous,
1: synchronistic. You, we, we, right? We don't know what are accidents or what are uh, what are um, synchronicities. Right. Um, so, then the road to the the road to injustice, the road to actually ethnography and telling stories. Like how how did that come to be?
0: Ethnography is both a method and um, an, uh, an outcome, a product. And so when you're training to become an anthropologist, one of the things that you can do is produce an ethnography, which is often a detailed description that's informed by theory to explain a particular set of circumstances. Um, people write very dry ethnographies. Other people write tomes that are just impenetrable <laughs> and then other people write ethnographies that are more theoretical and then other people write ethnographies that the general population can read um and i've always been very ethnographically inclined i think in part because i think maybe because i wrote poetry um and had published and Sort of perform poetry, and I had written a play that was produced by I don't by Greg Tate and um, Lisa Jones, who was Amiri Baraka's daughter, um, and just the sort of detailed process of writing to elicit emotions and feelings and telling people stories is something I've always enjoyed. Uh, and I think maybe the first, uh, I don't know, ethnographic interview I did was with my grandmother with eight. I think I had like eight hours of her telling her life oh, story, wow. which was amazing. So the ethnographic approach that I mm-hmm. use is life history or oral mm-hmm.
1: history. Well, and that's what tells the story. And, um, one of the stories that I recently read um, that you co-authored um, in this uh, new article, A Birth Story, um, oh. tells that story and um, the story of an experience um, and also of racism in a birth experience. I, this is, I didn't ask you this before the show. Um, I was wondering if you would read the poem that is in that Piece Ooh, because yeah. it's powerful, and it was powerful when I read it to myself, and I know that uh, it'll be far more powerful um, if you were able to read it for us.
0: Oh, that's what an honor! But it, you know, I didn't write that poem. Lacante mm-hmm, Dill wrote mm-hmm. that, but now I have to pull it up. Yeah, so you're gonna have to give. I'm gonna a give second you a second because I didn't.
1: It. I didn't let you prep for that. This is gonna be just a complete impromptu not. performance.
0: Well,
1: um, and okay. yeah, for everyone listening, this piece is about one of um, the co-authors' experience, and also in um, with with story and graphics about her experience, um, subtle and not so subtle, as we'll talk about, of racism that occurs, reproductive racism that occurs all the time as a matter of course um, in our country.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is a poem that was written um, after Laconte Dill, who is a public health scholar and a professor that wrote after she had given birth, Um, I served as her doula. And um, after she had given birth, she was in the labor and delivery room and at midnight, the nurses told her she had to go to the postpartum floor and no one helped her. No one supported her. She was pushing both her IV and the baby in the little um, isolate, and her husband was carrying all of their stuff. And this is the poem that she wrote um, called Moving to the Postpartum Floor. Feels like a demotion. Feels like I did something wrong. No longer are they waiting on me, hand and foot. Step careful, cautious. It's midnight, and they made me push my baby, newborn, just yesterday. Don't look behind me, but I know hubby's there, carrying 10,000 bags, What in the bootleg nativity is this? New room has a neighbor, mommy and baby behind a curtain. Her baby sleep, my baby up, my baby sleep, her baby up every couple of hours to feed, to take a new test. Nice nurses, not nice nurses. Press my breasts hard, press my arms hard, begging for my milk and my blood, such sacrifice. I want to go home, want to go make a home. Hospitals are not homes. In the meantime, I search for Google images of Tupac breaking out of Bellevue. It's right down the street, but feels burrows away. Anyway, a Hospital is not home. I, too, plot our escape. Or dream of a baby's Uber ride, or freak out about baby girl's first Uber ride, or dream about home, apartment, box in Brooklyn, and the mother who I will grow into being there.
1: Thank you for reading that.
0: My pleasure.
1: What does that poem express that? Are central themes to your book.
0: So first I'll say that Lacan'te's story does not appear in my book. I um, interviewed her and spent time with her after the book was published, but I lay out in the book, the dimensions of obstetric racism and her poem, uh, illustrates the frustration of the kind of experiences that black women have in hospital settings, where they feel uncared for, where they feel um, dismissed or neglected, all of which are things that Lacante experienced in the hospital. And in fact, she experienced those similar things while she was attempting to conceive because she had assisted reproduction. Um, And so I think her poem really sheds light on how complicated it is to be in a setting after you've done one of the most important things in your life And then to have people, which is, in her case, giving birth, and then to have people treat you so dismissively um, and to move you along, I think, in cattle fashion so that they can use the bed for the next person.
1: I know um, from my wife's work, she's a former uh, NICU nurse and labor and delivery nurse, and is currently a public health nurse. And so i've heard of the staggering numbers of um, increases of um, infant you know mortality um, c section, all of the different types of outcomes and treatment um, that okay. African Americans get compared to white dominant culture and I was wondering if you can share some of that updated some of those updated numbers just to let everyone know how significant this issue is.
0: Well, um, the updated numbers should be out, um, every year during in November, which is prematurity awareness month, the March of dimes, um, does a premature birth card rate uh, it's called a premature birth rate card mm-hmm. and um, what they're doing is rating each state giving it a grade for their ability or inability to reduce the premature birth rate now premature birth rates are really important because um prematurity is one of the most common causes of infant mortality Um, but, uh, and so, so in the, in the U S so first of all, the March of dimes would love originally, they wanted to have, a a premature birth rate of 8%. Um, and now, and and the U S was on a downward trend, which was good. And then I think maybe about two, I feel like it might've been about 2016 there were these incremental increases in premature birth rates. And now we are unfortunately at 10%, which makes us, us, the U.S., one of the Mm. first places to have a baby. But for black women, um, the premature birth rate, like black women, so black women are maybe um, 40 to 45% more likely to give birth prematurely that's huge. It is huge. And, um, you know, worldwide, it's, it's interestingly, it's the same thing. So in Great Britain, black women, so other indices are um, maternal mortality. In the, in the UK, a black woman is eight times more likely to die as a result of a pregnancy related cause than other women. In New York City, where I am, Black women are three to four times more likely to die um, as a result of pregnancy related causes. Uh, Ideally, the uh, C section rate should be really low, like, I don't know, should be something like six, seven percent. It's 30 percent. And Black women are are more likely to have c-sections in the u.s than any other group of women
1: so it's 30 percent for all women in america generally Generally, and then an increase increase with black women
0: and we just have this incredibly high Mm c-section rate you know the disparities are evident in the in the data and people use those numbers to talk about disparity but one of the things that I'm really interested in th- talking about is it's not just a disparity. There's a di- there is racism at work. Because we have been, in the United States at least, attempting to address maternal mortality and infant mortality since the 1910s when the the Children's Bureau was started. And despite all efforts, black people's rate of infant mortality, maternal mortality, premature birth, continues to be consistently higher. Now, maternal pre prenatal care is really supposed to address these incongruencies. And we have to ask ourselves, what's up with our prenatal care if we still end up having such horrible outcomes for particular groups of people and i'm just unwilling to accept the fact that there's something inherently wrong with groups of people Mm -hmm. i just don't think that's Mm -hmm. true what i think is true is that the medical profession has developed its skill in obstetrics and gynecology literally on the bodies. Black women who were enslaved, and that some of the ideas about those bodies as being hardy, as being, uh, as being capable of tolerating pain, um, all kinds of things. I think that those ideas from that past
1: mm-hmm. have migrated
0: mm-hmm. to the present.
1: Well, and as less than, I imagine, is on that list.
0: So, yeah, of yeah. course, yeah.
1: Um, you, you talked about, you know, despite all of these efforts since the 1910s, you know, I have to ask, you know, what has been the totality of, quote, all these efforts? You know, have you have have there been significant efforts um, that have been thwarted and or, hey, guys, where are all these efforts? We know this information. Why aren't we doing much about it?
0: I think one of the things that I think is, first of all, a lot of the efforts to save babies and to save women and birthing people in the 1910s, it really was rooted in a eugenic perspective. It was about saving white babies and saving white women. Um, If we look really closely at the people who were crafting programs, um, through projects like the Shepherd Townsend Act and, uh, you know, trying to get milk, for example, milk stations to people uh, so that their babies would be stronger. Like they really were focused on trying to save white infants, which was, co- which was also linked to the fact that like Irish people and Italian people and black people, didn't have the skill to take care of themselves. And so they, they kind of need help, but well, and the other thing is, so, so what I'm saying is, is on the one hand, a lot of these efforts from the early part of the 1900s was in fact about saving whiteness, preserving it. Um, But the other thing is, is that I really think technology has driven a kind of um, diagnostic dependency where we just think everything can be addressed by diagnosis, by using fetal monitors. You know, fetal monitors will show you what a baby's heart rate is doing, but do you need to freak out when it drops a little, Mm -hmm. probably not. They could be just moving or when it raises a little, they could just be moving, but we use those technologies to develop, um, certain kinds of interventions. And it's fascinating to me that we, you know, during COVID more babies were born at term. This was internationally than than has happened in quite some time, and why is wow. that people actually weren't going to the doctor so much they weren't going into hospital settings so much i 'm not saying that they were having home births, but because you know people who go to hospitals for their care for their you know to see their to go to their doctor in the practice, they didn't want people going into hospitals, and there was a lot of telecare. Huh. So that means that people weren't getting all of the interventions that might typically lead to a particular kind of diagnosis that might lead to, a, oh, let's do an induction. Oh, let's do a C-section. Oh, you know, that kind of thing. That's, yeah. so, I have to, so I have to wonder about the role of, of technology in saving babies and people and why we use technology to intervene when we probably would do better by using preventive methods, such as letting people labor at home as long as possible, such as providing different kinds of prenatal care, such as, you know, making sure people have, you know, like maybe, maybe people could take their own blood pressure at home. Maybe their blood pressure is high because they're at the doctor and they have white coat syndrome.
1: (laughs) I'm hearing the doula in you speaking as well. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. It is true. What I'm hearing is the intersection through obstetric racism and technology. That intersection Mm -hmm. is a perfect storm or a, um, a bad combination?
0: I don't want people to get the impression that I think technology is not useful. I just think we have an over-dependence on technology and that and that there may be some link between the over-dependence on technology and the way particular bodies get viewed that result in certain kinds of interventions. If you already believe, as, a, as an obstetrician, that um, a a black body is going to naturally, is going to quote naturally have a baby early because that's what happens with black people. Um, And you use technology to make decisions about, you know, blood pressure rates and so forth. And then you end up possibly having a particular kind of diagnosis that will confirm You'll use technology to confirm your diagnostic predilection, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right, or prediction. And so I know people who, you know, large black women, they say, oh, you know, because they think a person is large, they think, oh, you must have high blood pressure. That's not always the case. Not every every black person has high blood pressure. I can't tell you the number of times obstetricians will say, oh, you're large. You're probably going to end up with high blood pressure, also known as Mm preeclampsia. And we're probably going to have to do a C-section. Oh, let me take your blood pressure. Let me take your blood pressure. Let me take your blood pressure. Let me do a, you know. the blood pressure goes up. It all goes
1: up. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. It goes up maybe. Um, And then they start preparing the patient for thinking that they're going to have. They might start preparing the patient for thinking that they may have to have a C-section, which in and of itself can create stress, which could raise your blood pressure. I mean, I've actually seen Mm -hmm. that happen. Again, I'm not saying that technology is mm-hmm. bad. I am simply saying that we would probably be more successful in reducing rates of infant mortality and maternal mortality if we did more preventive work. If we offered post birth opportunities for people to stay home and heal, that in the postpartum phase, people got 40 days or 60 days to just be supported and heal. You know, I don't know about you. When I was a kid, when my sister was born in 1963 like a nurse came to yeah, our house yeah. yeah yeah and and helped my mom out okay i got a funny story
1: about that so when my brother was born in 1973 lucy the nurse came to the house i'm i'm told all this and i was mm-hmm. uh, about 2 years or so older and after the few days when lucy left um, actually, I have this image of Lucy wearing nursing, white nursing garb. Yes. Right? So I don't know if like I've made that up or that's real. It seemed like, you know, old school nursing. So she's leaving. And apparently I ran after her, toddled after her. And I said, Lucy, Lucy, you forgot the baby.
0: That's really funny.
1: But that was normal.
0: That, that was really normal. Funny. Yeah. yeah. Right. Where is hmm. that? You know, where is that support? Yeah. Um. And people can have babies at term if they receive support. You know, that's what group prenatal care can do. People can, you know, I think people just need more support during pregnancy and after pregnancy, Mm -hmm. during conception and after conception. And it doesn't have to be that deep. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to depend on, you know, ultrasounds or sonograms.
1: In terms of raising awareness, which your book is about, raising awareness um, on obstetric mm-hmm. racism, I, I want to highlight the, the different types that you identify um, for your comment. So we have um, diagnostic lapses, yes. neglect, dismissiveness, or disrespect, intentionally causing pain, coercion, Ceremonies of degradation, medical abuse, and racial reconnaissance. Yes. That's a lot of stuff going on. And um, as I have read in s- subtle and not so subtle ways, constantly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are there any of those which you wish to highlight for our listeners, I know they're all important, but you know, what, what, what do we all need to be aware of that occurs? And also what to look for, for our listeners, for themselves or their loved ones being in the situation of um, birth and hospitals?
0: Sure. I do think that diagnostic lapses occur. That's actually expressed or an example of that is what i described before talking about you know a black woman for example who is large and the presumption is that she's going to require or that she's going to end up with high blood pressure and that she may, or and that they is it they may require a c section mm-hmm. that's a diagnostic mm-hmm. lapse is because there's some belief that blackness is pathological mm-hmm that leads to an exaggeration of what the outcome is going to be. Um, I do think that people need to be really, the most common thing I think happens is neglect, dismissiveness, or disrespect. I think that happens because the medical professionals do not believe that patients understand their own bodies. It is fascinating to me the number of times a person will say, I had a sense that something was wrong and they didn't pay attention. They didn't listen to me or they, you know, pushed aside my concerns. It, I, it, it is unbelievable. And what that means to me is that patients in a hospitalist or medical setting need to assert mm-hmm. themselves and need to come fully prepared to defend what they perceive as being the thing that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And even if they are wrong about what is wrong mm-hmm. with them, that does not mean that they do not deserve to be treated with respect.
1: And is that possible with a woman, a black woman alone in the experience? Um, I just imagine a- <clears throat> imagine multitudes of overwhelm um right versus you know having a partner a a, a, some other family member a doula Mm -hmm. you know these are all like ways to layer in support to prevent these situations and have someone to advocate for you
0: right i mean i think everybody going to see a doctor should have a person with them we all need witnesses You know, when my mother got diagnosed with having lung cancer, she couldn't hear what they were saying to her. And so, you know, we were there taking notes. And that helps. What that suggests to me is that people always need patient advocates, family members, you know, just another witness, another support person Mm -hmm. for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, In this fast-paced world with all of these technological – Apparati and um and and testing and so forth it's really helpful to have somebody else to bounce that kind of stuff mm-hmm. off mm-hmm. of um, but it also can help you afterwards when you're leaving a particular yeah. medical encounter and you just want to be like oh wait what did they mm-hmm. say yes you know.
1: very hard to be the patient um, um in, in, in
0: I think yeah, so.
1: It will end in pain but, and in overwhelm, in fear, and in, in, in all of the situations. Sure. So, you spent six years interviewing um, your people for your book. Yes.
0: I did.
1: I, what That's I'm what wondering about is as an expert in the field and as you embarked on this um, project. What did you end up learning, or finding out, or becoming aware of that you either didn't expect, or, or you mm. know, or weren't previously aware of?
0: Oh, um, I don't think I expected the subtle. narrations of racism I didn't you know I mean I know what racism looks like I've experienced it I didn't expect people birthing people would say that something felt like it was racist and that they could also make a reference to the past meaning so this didn't happen in my, I don't talk about it in my book, but I've done focus groups with people since. Um, but sometimes women will say things like, oh, I, I had a baby. And afterwards I felt like I was, I felt like I was on a plantation. Like the, the fact that they were being forced to do certain things. And I just found that constant reference back to the past, to the historical past of what black people's lives have been like in the United States, really, really fascinating. I also did not expect, and what I learned was about the thing that I call racial refusal, which was on the part of medical professionals, particularly NICU chiefs, chiefs of NICU departments and, neonatologists who simply refused to acknowledge or talk about race but then proceeded to use euphemisms that reflected on mm-hmm. race mm-hmm. um and i think it was I, I found that um i found that somewhat surprising mm-hmm. uh yeah
1: yeah I- it brings me to the purpose of your book um what would you say you know is and has become the purpose of your book your hopes for this work
0: Hmm. so interestingly i had hoped that the book would undo things I had, I had hoped that people would unlearn the way that society has pigeonholed poor and low-income black people as being responsible for their own health and birth outcomes. I had hoped, I hope that when people read this book, they understand that there might be any number of reasons that, a, that adverse birth outcomes occur among Blacks, but one of the reasons that we need to look at and that we must attend to is the role that is specifically played by the medical complex. I am absolutely unwilling to not have that factor in our accounting of, of why we have these birth outcomes. I mean, I think Serena Williams is a really good example of that whole expression of neglect and dismissiveness where they weren't paying attention to her. That was not because she had something wrong with her or she wasn't compliant. It was because the medical professionals refused to believe her own assessment of her body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I had wanted people to realize that black people with lots of degrees of capital, you know, like access to insurance and higher degrees of education that they experience racism too, mm-hmm. right? Um, I wanted people, and I think the goal, one, another goal of the book is that I'm critiquing the idea of the medical complex, yes. that we think that every single thing in pregnancy and concept, well, pregnancy must be medicalized at the expense of having a more expansive mm-hmm. view of pregnancy and birthing options. we do, Not everybody needs to give birth in a hospital. People could do it at home, they could do it at birthing centers. Um, and that's not to say that I think that there's no place for medicine. Mm-hmm. I just think we need to have more options. Um, and I think finally I had one goal was for medical providers to unlearn mm-hmm. their own insistence on their expertise mm. like their expertise needs to be mediated by the fact that people understand their own bodies
1: so what are you hearing from this community thus far about uh about your book
0: oddly it's being very well received oh wonderful not that's that. wonderful yeah. yeah and i have been working with an OBGYN epidemiologist karen a scott who has taken the obstetric racism framework and turned it into what's called a patient-reported experience measure, making it the only validated measure of Black women's experiences in hospital settings. Nice. And using it to get hospitals to recognize that racism probably circulates and how and in what domains. And, um, you know, it's... H- hospitals are excited about that work and oh, that's wonderful that's um, wonderful they're interested in learning about what it is they can do to shift
1: that is awesome your goals are uh are are, are are in the process of being met and um that leads me to the final question prior to our final question and that is okay. for all of us all of us everyone listening what, what are actions that the everyday person can take to raise awareness to make a difference uh, with obstetric racism?
0: Ooh. Well, I think that there needs to be more community involvement in um, getting permissions for birthing centers which can be really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. It's like trying to scale the gates to get into the White House, which, yeah. well, that's not a good not analogy. Not anymore, yeah. Not anymore, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not yeah, anymore, yeah. but okay, yeah. used to be. Um, and, you know, I was just talking to somebody recently who said, it, I just don't remember what state they were in, but, we need to make it more accessible for there to be, um, practicing midwives. Not every midwife needs to be a nurse, right? Uh, so opening up options, yeah. I yeah. think. And, and I think people really need to focus on some kind of healthcare system that will allow for comprehensive Care and reimbursements. I mean, I actually really believe in universal healthcare. I think it's the only way that we're gonna close a kind of health mm-hmm. gap.
1: That yeah, so. and in just the trajectory of um, you know premature children and. The medical costs, the medical care, the um, medical issues, the the learning and processing challenges. You know, I mean, there's lot, lots, mm-hmm. there's lots of ways to get all that, but it's just it's the beginning of life. You know, assuming the life mm-hmm. occurs, um, it's the yeah. beginning of life and so so critical. Okay, Dawn, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Okay. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or an awareness of your parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your child, or your
0: life. Okay. So, I think maybe when I was five, my mother went to Europe for a month. And I stayed with my grandparents and my father. Um, And my mother has always been a, a, she's literally a world traveler. And my father refused to fly. I think he flew one time in my entire life. But I learned, but what he did was he always supported her trips. He was so wonderful about supporting her trips. So what I learned was, A, as a, so as a person, I learned, A, you know, be curious, go places, enjoy yourself, and don't let anything stop mm-hmm. you, even if you have a husband or a mm-hmm. partner. But I b, I think I also learned that in relationships, intimate relationships, when a person can be really joyful for you and really support you in the thing that you want to do, that's like the gift, mm. a magnificent gift. And uh, so, I guess I strive to have relationships like that.
1: <laughs> yes, that is so powerful, so insightful, um, and and also just shows how impressionable we are, humans as children. Like you know, age five, you had this awareness, which then you got to see. It sounds like from your parents several times this dynamic play out, um, but at
0: at least yeah, twice yeah, a year but it
1: hit like it sticks with you at five um and i just think that's beautiful the idea of a partner you know the strong bond that you are you you are excited and supportive of your partner even when they are going in a place where you are literally or figuratively not going yourself
0: yeah yeah
1: Well, thank you for sharing that moment and sharing your experience um, and your lived wisdom and scholarship. Tell everyone where they can find your new piece of work, Reproductive Injustice, and all of your others as well.
0: So Reproductive Injustice, Racism, Pregnancy, and Premature Birth is published by NYU Press, New York University Press and you can go on their website um my other book uh i have another book with krista craven called feminist ethnography that's published by roman and littlefield we have two books published with them and my first book battered black women and welfare reform between a rock and a hard place was published by SUNY press so, I encourage people to go to the university websites to thank get you. the book.
1: Thank you. And thank for those uh, who can't see uh, Donna and I looking at each other, she gave me a little wink because before the show, I was educated on how to pronounce the difference between Kuni and SUNY and how they are separate. Um, so, anyways, I am now educated in other ways as well. So, thank you for that. You're very welcome. All right, everyone, that concludes another insightful and important show and topic. If you want more of Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan, check out our bonus episodes once a month exclusively on Stitcher Premium. To listen, just go to stitcherpremium.com slash Dr. Dan, click start free trial, select a monthly plan and sign up with the code Dr. Dan, and you'll get a month of free listening. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. It's simple to say it's hard to do. That is to be the person, try to be the person you want your child to become and ask yourself the question I ask myself every day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.